Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer at NACE. This is the second episode in a two-part series on recent updates in managing hyperkalemia in patients with heart failure, CKD, and hypertension. Joining me is my friend and colleague, Dr. George Bakris. Dr. Bakris is Director of the AHA Comprehensive Hypertension Center and Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. So glad you could join me today, George. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. George, in this second podcast activity, we're going to discuss newer therapies for management of hyperkalemia and how our colleagues listening can incorporate these agents into their clinical practice. So to set the stage, I thought it'd be great to begin with a case so everybody could picture this patient in their practice. This is a typical case of a 66-year-old man with HEFREF and reduced kidney function with an EGFR of 40. Blood pressure is 135 over 80, heart rate's 88, and he has two-plus pitting edema. His history is significant for constipation. Recently, he achieved optimal therapy for HEFREF through dose titration, which include RAS inhibitor Losartan at 100 milligrams daily. Unfortunately, his potassium in your office follow-up is now at 5.7, up from his baseline of 4.6. George, this typical patient treating for HEFREF, potassium goes from 4.6 to 5.7. I wonder if you can tell us about some of the newer options for managing hyperkalemia that our colleagues may reach for. It's pretty clear that this person is going to need some kind of enabling therapy, which means potassium binders. I say that because if you stop the medications, specifically the angiotensin receptor blocker is on Losartan or the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, which is probably spironolactone, which is indicated in this patient, he's not going to get maximal therapy. And you really shouldn't deny a maximal therapy. So one of the things that you can do is stop the Losartan and give him secubitral Valsartan, which is going to give him a better diuretic effect and help your potassium a little bit in that way. But more importantly, they're going to need, he's going to need some kind of binding of potassium to get rid of it since his kidney is unable to deal with it. And he's got factors working against him. So there are two agents that are available besides SPS. One is pteromir, also known as Veltasa, and the other one is sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, also known as Localma. Now, these agents are both potassium binders, and they're both very well tested. They're approved, and they've been around for at least seven to eight years. So they're not new in that regard. And the major difference between these two agents and SPS is they're well-tolerated. They can be taken daily. And in fact, both these agents have been tested with daily use for one year. And these are published. One is in JAMA. The other one is in Clinical JSON. These are major journals clearly documenting the chronic use of these agents as enablers of proper therapy in patients whose kidneys really can't handle the potassium. Now, again, very important that you think of these agents to enable proper therapy in the patients that need it. And 
The thing is, everybody's worried about these agents. The major side effects of these agents are nothing like SPS. Number one, the tiramir has constipation as a major side effect. This patient has constipation. So that's not an agent that you're going to jump to in somebody like this. And the other difference between the sodium zirconium cyclosilicate is that this is a calcium-based binder, whereas SEC is based as a sodium binder. So it's very different from a chemistry standpoint. Number two, the side effects tend to be different. The tiramir has side effects of hypomagnesemia, which is very, very small change in magnesium. It doesn't really cause true hypomagnesemia, but it is going to lower magnesium to the tune of maybe 0.1 or 0.2 milligrams per deciliter. That's number one. If you give it excessively, it can cause hypokalemia, but constipation is by far the most common side effect. SEC, on the other hand, is a sodium-based molecule. It's a totally different chemistry, and it comes as three doses, 5 grams, 10 grams, and 15 grams. And as you can imagine, at higher doses, edema is an issue. Now, you could say, wait a minute, this guy's got heart failure. He's already got edema. We need to not think about that. The truth is that at doses of 5 or 10 grams, which I've used a lot, the reality is edema is a very minor factor, especially if you're giving proper diuretics. It's really not a big deal. Even at 15 grams, it really, while it's more of a deal, it actually can be easily managed. I think those are important issues. The other important issue is patermir cannot be given at the same time as all the other medications because there's some binding. However, there's only three medications that really are an issue. Metformin, thyroid medication, and an antibiotic, uh, which I don't remember. But basically, the majority of medicines are fine. And if you leave three hours, which is the updated label, between dosing, you're fine with that drug. SZC really doesn't have any major binding that's been shown, but for as a precaution, you can allow some time in between medications as well there. I think it's important to know that you have not one, but two very safe options that you can use in a patient like this, and it will enable this therapy to take its action, which you need to appreciate and cardiologists I know appreciate this, that after about four to six months, the heart will improve dramatically. Guess what happens when the heart improves dramatically? Kidney function improves. So you may not need it down the road. And that's something that you have to understand could happen. So I think it's important that you know about these agents, that you use these agents appropriately, and at least in my experience, insurance coverage for these agents, which was previously difficult, is now much more flexible. That should not be an excuse not to use these agents. George, I think that was really helpful in setting the stage and clarifying these agents, but I wonder how quickly these agents will work to decrease potassium levels in our patients at risk. Both these agents within 24 hours 
clearly are going to start showing you reductions in potassium. This is well-documented. And what's interesting is with uh, Batyramir, the evidence is that you're actually seeing some effects within the first six to seven hours. With the sodium, with the SZC, there's actually data that you can see effects within the hour. But part of that is not so much from binding, it's from bicarbonate changes that are an extra plus of potassium being pushed into the cell. But definitely within 12 hours, both these agents are giving you benefits and they're not going to cure hyperkalemia, but they will take you out of the danger zone of hyperkalemia. How far after starting these medicines should colleagues be rechecking potassium levels? If you're really very nervous, you can recheck the potassium in three days, two, three days, because it definitely will be down by then. Because I'm more familiar with this data, I don't check it until about a week. Because at that point, you should be in a steady state and you should see what the actual potassium is. But if you want to see reduction, you can check it in 24 hours if you want. But we're not running an emergency room as an outpatient. So I would say two to three days, you definitely will see something that's significant, but I would say a week. The final follow-up to this, are there any particular charting requirements that our colleagues should be aware of to get insurance approval for any of these agents? I think what you need is you need documentation that the patient has heart failure or advanced kidney disease or both. That's number one. And then number two, that they're on these therapies that are required per guidelines, and then they have a potassium problem. If you have all that, that's really all you need. Putting it all together would be helpful for our colleagues to learn about your approach to managing hyperkalemia in these patients. We'll also have CKD, heart failure, and hypertension, so they might see what you're doing in your practice. I try to identify people in advance that I think are going to have a problem with this that are going to require this therapy. You only need to note two things. Number one, what's their GFR? If it's below 45, I know they're going to be at much higher risk. Number two, what's their potassium at baseline on diuretics? On diuretics, that's important. If the potassium is greater than 4.8, I know for a fact that those two groups of people are definitely going to have a problem with potassium. So I preempt that by warning them about diet, and I give them a handout. You can go to kidney.org and get this. It's from the National Kidney Foundation. And then the patient can refer to that for low-potassium foods. Now, most patients are not going to stick with that diet. Let's be honest. They will try, but after a week or so, they're coming off. So I know this, and so in anticipation, what I'm going to do is I'm going to check their potassium after I start the therapy within a week and see where it is. If it's elevated, and I know this is mandatory therapy, I'm not going to play with the doses and all that, because we know if you're not getting the doses used in the clinical trials, you are not getting the outcomes that you think you're getting. A lot of people are under that impression. There's five papers in the literature that clearly show that that's not true. 
So they need a binder. I will write for a binder in that situation, and I will start them off encouraging them to stay on the low potassium diet, and I will start them off using it three times a week so that they don't feel like they have to take it every day. And then I'll recheck them three times a week after a couple of weeks and see where they are. I've found in most people that three to four times a week is all they need the binder for. They don't need every day. They can take it every day, and there may be some that don't want to sacrifice the diet, at which point you definitely need it every day. But if they're willing to work with a diet, you can get by with three or four times a week. So that's what I do. That's helpful for all of us in managing these patients, which are increasingly complex and require multiple medications to optimize their care. George, I think this has been terrific, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and our other colleagues listening to share your expertise in managing hyperkalemia and overcoming the barriers to treatment that often may occur in these high-risk patient populations. Thank you very much, Greg, for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you're interested in learning more about recent developments in the management of hyperkalemia in high-risk patients, join us for the first part of my discussion with George titled, Hyperkalemia and the Limits of Traditional Management. You can also go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for any of our other enduring activities on hyperkalemia, heart failure, CKD, or any other program we've developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. And finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you've learned something new you can bring back to your practice. We look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.